welcome back to the next episode of the story of grace. We've been talking about the flood in Genesis 5 and 6. Um, there's a pattern here that I want to see before we get into the details of the flood. There's a repeating verse throughout the book of Genesis. Uh, our translation usually has something like, uh, these are the generations of, this is the story of, this is the account of, this is the history of, something along those lines. It starts in chapter 2, the first one where it says, this is the history of the earth. This is the generations of the earth and the day that God created the heavens and the earth. The next one we see in chapter 5. This is the generation of Adam. And then the third one we see in chapter 6 where it says this is the generation of Noah. The word generation in the Hebrew is very similar to the word generation in English. It means that which is brought forth. An electrical generator brings forth electricity. A man and a woman coming together will bring forth a child. Uh, that's a generation, something that is brought forth. If we think of it this way, then Moses is saying something profound as he is dividing up these sections in Genesis and giving chapter divisions, if you will. The first one is, what did the earth bring forth? And then it lists the creation of Adam, created out of the dust, and Eve taken from the side of Adam. We've gone through that. Uh, and it ends up with the fall in uh, Cain and Abel's murder, uh, the ground of the earth crying out to God, uh, the scripture says. The blood of the, uh, the, blood of the ground uh, of Abel's blood crying out to God. And then Cain is banished. And then it talks about Cain and his descendants building uh, great cities and building uh, things, uh, musical instruments out of the earth and brass and wood and iron and craftsmanship out of the earth. What did the earth bring forth? A tremendous civilization, but also murder and death and pain. Now the next section in chapter 5, it says, what did Adam bring forth? This is the generation of Adam. And then there's a genealogy, and the one thing that sticks out in the genealogy is the word, and he died. And Adam beget, and he died. And Methuselah beget, and he died. And Lamech beget, and he died. And on and on it goes. Death is now in the world. And there's a decline. In this decline, as we get to uh, Lamech, and Lamech gives birth to Noah, he says, this one will give us rest from the works of our hands. Something that Lamech saw in Noah, a prophetic seeing, uh, that Noah would somehow bring about a change, bring about something new, whether through his line, of course, ultimately Christ would come through his line, but there would be salvation coming through Noah that would bring about rest. So today I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about rest and peace, one thing we all know too little about, and we should know more about it. The first thing, as I said last time, in chapter 6, we see the decline. What did Adam bring forth in chapter 5? It says in chapter 5 um, that God created man. You've turned with me to chapter 5. and also, uh, Of course, a reminder here might be helpful. The word Adam is a proper name. It's also translated mankind. It stands for all of humanity. It's mankind, male and female. Adam. God called them Adam. 
Uh, that's the name that God gave humanity. It's also the name that God gave the first man, Adam. And so sometimes in our translation, since it doesn't really come through in the English, you have to determine whether it's a proper name or whether it's speaking of mankind in general. And so sometimes we don't see these patterns. But what we get in chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, the book of the generations of Adam, the what did Adam bring forth? It's so sad and tragic. It, it tugs at the heartstrings because it says in verse 1, in the day that God created Adam, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them. And he called their name Adam in the day that they were created. What a beautiful picture. God made them in his image, male and female, with this beautiful unity. And he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiplied and called their name Adam. And then in chapter 6, we saw last time, the sons of God and the daughters of men, the sons of God taking whatever they want, uh, the, uh, the echo of the, the, the fall of Eve uh, where she saw the fruit and she took. And now the sons of God saw the daughters of men and they take uh, everything they chose. And God says in verse 3, my spirit will not always strive with Adam, man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And as I want to look at this pattern, it gets to verse number five. It says, And God saw the wickedness of Adam was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made Adam on the earth, and it grieved him as at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy Adam, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. I'm reading from the King James. That's what's in front of me. Um, and I'm translating the word mankind in the Hebrew, Adam. It repents God that he's sorry that he made Adam. The very, see what he's doing here in these chapters. In chapter 5, God creates Adam, male and female, blesses them, pronounces them very good. And then the fall happened. Paul in the epistle of Romans describes total depravity just as theologians have sorted through scripture and have come up with this, uh, the, the, uh, the doctrine of total depravity. Moses shows it. He shows it to the point where the thought of this man, mankind, the thought of mankind is only evil continually from the youth. God had let them alone. And on the one hand, in verse 4 of chapter 6, it says, there were giants, Nephilim, in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. This taking uh, that's described in verse 1, they took of them all that, were ch all that they chose, is now producing a tremendous race of men. The genetic code had not been degraded. It was as God created it, as God intended. If you think of the billions of people on the earth today and the tremendous variety of genetics uh, throughout the world, and yet all of those genetics all came from one man, Noah, 
which was generations from Adam. This is before that genetic code had been whittled down to one man. So the huge variety of mankind, Adam, what a beautiful, tremendous variety. And there were men of renown, men of great intellect, men of great power, men of great stature, uh, men of, of tremendous power. Men of renown. This is how God created them. God created man and woman to have dominion over the earth and created them with all of these gifts. And what are they doing with these gifts? They're seeing and taking, oppressing and crushing, and the thoughts of their hearts are only evil continually. God has not restrained them with his spirit. He strives with them until God says, my spirit is not always going to strive with man. It says in verse 6, it repented the Lord that he made man, that he made Adam on the earth. Can you hear the tragedy in that statement? Of course, the theologians want to uphold the doctrine of the immutability that God is unchanging, and that's absolutely true. But the only thing we can know about God is how he reveals himself. The only way that God can reveal himself is through human words, with human emotions. And here God is contrasting the beauty of how he created man to fellowship and to rejoice with God and to walk with him and to have joy with him in the garden forever. And now man has made himself so loathsome that God is disgusted with him, going, why on earth did I even make men and women? Let's put that in human terms. We can't pry into the incomprehensibility of God. There's things about God's majesty. We will never pull him down from the throne and examine him. We have to take him at his word. And here the, the contrast is not teaching us that God changes his mind. He's teaching us the loathsomeness that man has become, the twistedness of evil, and how wicked they had become. They who had such tremendous promise and then verse 8 but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord the message Bible Noah made God smile at first those of us with reformed backgrounds will roll our eyes at that what kind of liberalism is this but think about it it's actually not a bad paraphrase Noah made God smile. The Hebrew word is hain. We get Hannah from that word. Also Anna, Jonathan, Johan. It's a take on this word for grace, beauty. Someone that is attractive. Someone that has attracted attention and favor from someone far greater. It's probably best to use the biblical example to define it. When Esther is called, or when Esther needs to go before the king to plead for her countrymen's lives. She knows that if she doesn't find favor in the eyes of the king, the king could order her executed. He's done it before. You don't just walk into the king's presence. And so Esther says, if he kill me, he kill me. And he walked, she walked into his presence. And he lifts his scepter, and she finds grace in his eyes. It's the word of a lesser to someone far greater have I found grace in your eyes. Someone that has the power to kill and to destroy. We have a hard time understanding this concept because we don't have kings with this kind of power. 
God is using this language to describe, here's Noah, out of all the race of corrupt men, there's still one that has found favor in God's sight. The language does not indicate that there was anything in Noah that God found particularly pleasing. It came from God. Noah found this in the eyes of God because God smiled favorably on him. It was not God's intention to utterly do away with all of his creation. He is still going to keep his promise to Adam. He will always keep his promises. And so he gives Noah a command to build the ark. We'll talk about the ark next week. Uh, For now, I want to talk about the 120 years. His days shall be 120 years. Think of Noah, the one righteous man and his wife in that environment where there's no restraint, where there's nothing good, where there's nothing but evil continually. And Noah grieved in his heart. The apostle Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached to that generation. The indication is anyone that asked for room and board on the ark would have been accepted. But no one repented. No one turned from their way. They thought he was simply making up stories. For 120 years. He's the laughingstock for 120 years. And there's not one thing he can do to speed it up. God has his timetable. We're called to rest. This is the picture, looking forward, of what Lamech said about Noah. This one will comfort us and give us rest concerning the work and toil of our hands. This one will give us rest. And so here, Noah, he builds the ark. It doesn't take 120 years to build an ark, especially when he's surrounded by men of renown. They know how to do it. They can do it. They can put it together. They put it together and it sits there and it waits. And it waits. And it waits. Do you know how many times in Scripture the people of God wait? It's a mark of faith and patience to wait. We can't speed up God's time. We can't speed up His day. We can't speed up what He's doing on this earth. All we can do is plant tomatoes, build an ark, Wait for the salvation of the Lord. It's when we start getting impatient that we quit being able to sleep at night, that we get restless and disturbed, that we start to get so angry and bitter at all of those sinners out there that are messing everything up instead of realizing salvation comes in God's time. Peter tells us why we wait for his day. Because God is long-suffering and he is not willing that any should perish. God is not a capricious monster taking delight in the death of men and women. He waits to give time for repentance. That every opportunity to repent can be offered and given. That the free offer of the gospel can go that everyone can hear There's the ark. Get on the ark. Now there's another topic in theology, the topic of God's predestination, where only the elect, those chosen by God from before the foundation of the world, will come. 
That's a different topic. This is the topic of God's long-suffering and his goodness leading men and women to repentance. This is why we wait. For God is not willing that any should perish. So he offers the gospel freely. He did not take delight in crushing men and women underfoot with the waters of the flood like some kind of a sadistic monster. His justice was satisfied. That was made necessary because of the sin of man. His thoughts were only evil continually. But Noah found grace. We're going to talk about this ark the next time. But for now, there is an ark provided for all of mankind, our Lord Jesus Christ. That ark is a type of baptism, where the slow-moving waters of baptism cleanse and invite us into the ark of Jesus Christ. And there we find safety and security. There we find salvation from the floodwaters of God's wrath that are surely coming. That's all for today. We'll continue next time. Thank you for listening.